I was barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this incredible privilege to gather together on an evening like this as family in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for the inspired Word of God, the completed canon of Scripture. Thank you for always keeping it real for us. Thank you for never letting us off the hook. Tough love is as good as any kind of love, and as we've experienced here over the past year or so, we've gotten an awful lot of that, and we're so very grateful, Father, for your straightening us out, setting us free, frankly. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening but earnestly desire to be here. May they understand our love for them and that we are with them in spirit always, and we're praying for them. We pray most of all for those still lost in this world, Father, and we appreciate the opportunity to bring the gospel to them so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt and make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why are the apostles so encouraging by grace they were prepared? This is part 60. Uh, this past week, um, we received some encouragement. Actually, it's been about a week and a half now. We've received some encouragement from the Spirit on the topic of authority orientation. And I'm going to give you sort of the capstones of that this evening. Regarding the ministry, I mean, you're part of a ministry. You're sitting in the fruits of a ministry, obviously. But regarding the ministry itself uh, and the goings-on, a minister's job is to, guess what, minister. It's the root word of administer. It's my job to administer the ointment from the Word of God. It's my job to administer the staff or the rod, to use the shepherd analogy, the rod being the corrective function of the pastor-teacher. So it's my job to minister in season, out of season. It does not matter. I don't really have a say in it. For example, Galatians 4.16, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be honest. I'm serving you because I serve the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That obviously means when it's popular and when it's unpopular. It shouldn't make a difference to a pastor worth his salt whether or not something's popular. So preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And just a little bit more on the personal side of it, the minister, I'm here because I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you cut to the chase, if I were to die tomorrow, this is what I want you to know. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is why I'm here, to prepare you, as Ephesians 4 says, to equip the saints for the work of service. And what's your work of service? The Great Commission, to take the very same gospel that you might have received from this pulpit. 
out to a lost and dying world. I can't do this alone, obviously, so I'm here because I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please never forget this simple truth, really for both our sakes, more for your own, actually. To me, I've been thinking an awful lot about this. To me, salvation is everything. It's everything. I mean, we're inundated with distractions, white noise, um, things to do, goals to meet, um, things to learn, places to go, people to meet, etc., etc. But to me, salvation is everything. What good is any other conversation if I'm talking to a dead person? The Bible says a person who's not saved is spiritually dead. What good is any other conversation if I'm talking to a dead person? I mean, seriously. And maybe this is a personal flaw of mine. I don't think it is, but everywhere I go, everyone I talk to, all that matters is one simple question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And by believe, it is implied in my soul that every potential believer first understand their inherent depravity. I want to know if their flesh has been crucified with Christ, if their sins were nailed to that cross the way mine were. For Jesus himself has said that those who do not have faith in these things specifically him, shall die in their sins. Go to John 8.23. John 8.23. This is all I want to know. I want to know, am I speaking to someone who is my brother or sister in Christ? Because what else matters? What am I going to do? Celebrate in the world with these people? What am I going to do? Contribute to their folly? I don't want any part of it. I really don't. And the Spirit's been pretty harsh with us the last month or so on this topic of celebrating ungodliness. Things that we find ourselves doing all the time. John 8, 23. And he was saying to them, Jesus Christ, obviously probably read letters in your Bibles. He was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I don't know about you, but I don't want anyone dying in their sins. I know it happens, but that's not my desire. It's not even God's desire, strictly speaking. I don't want anyone dying in their sins, even the most distasteful among us. And just a sort of a sneak peek, when you read this week's blog, you'll understand a little bit more about the inherent depravity of man. And that when said depravity boils over into our lives, maybe it's intrusive. Maybe another person's flesh is almost intolerable. Some of you are like, yeah, I married that person. That was a joke. 
You can laugh. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You're sitting next to your spouse. We'll laugh about it later. Shoot me a text or something. <laughs> I couldn't laugh, Pastor, because, you know. <laughs> when that said depravity boils over into our lives, causing us pain and suffering, what we ought to do is pray for them. Motivated by the gospel itself. The gospel is everything. Why would you pray for an enemy? Because of the gospel. Go to Luke 6.27. Luke 6.27. This is how central the gospel theme is in the word of God. Luke 6.27. We're going to read Jesus' words again. What's he have to say about our enemies? Luke 6.27. But I say to you who hear... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Those aren't my words. Those are the Lord's words. But I say to you here, uh, those who, who to, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. As I mentioned last week, I was reading a sermon from. Charles Spurgeon on salvation, and I found it so moving that I shared a bit of it with you. The sermon included a piece on Romans 2.16 up here on the board. On the day when, according to my gospel, we talked about the affinity of Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, towards the gospel. It was so intimate to him, so much everything to him, that he rightly called it his gospel. It was that personal to him. And the encouragement we received from the Spirit was that's how we should feel about the gospel. It's our gospel. And we should tend to it and share it with others. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, it seems apparent that Spurgeon had the same zeal for the gospel as Paul did, or at least a bit or at least an undying love for it, if you would. So I thought I'd share a bit more of that sermon with you for the sake of encouragement. And my prayer is that you too find a bit of yourself, your own good heart, in the midst of his words. These, aren't, you know, these um, affinities, if you would, for Christ, they're not unique to Paul. What have we learned? Why are the apostles so encouraging in the first place? Because they were just regular guys. They weren't guys that, you know, idiot men like to make 50-foot statues of these individuals, but they would tear them down themselves if they were here. That's why we can relate to them. That's why they're encouraging to us, because they were just regular guys. Paul was a regular guy. I mean, he was probably smarter and a little bit more aloof in his previous life. But Peter was a fisherman. How about Spurgeon? Was there anything necessarily special about Spurgeon? No. And if he were here, he'd tell you the same thing. So my prayer is that you find a bit of yourself, your own good heart, in the midst of Spurgeon's words that I'm about to read. For if both Paul and Charles, we're on a first-name basis, by the way. (laughs) If both Paul and Charles were standing here before us this very day, neither would propose that you, too, aren't able to share in their exuberance. 
over the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. As a lead into this sermon, allow me to remind you of Jesus' own words. Go to Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10. So I want you to think about this. I don't want you to put dead people on pedestals. Was Charles Spurgeon an amazing preacher? You bet. He's one of my personal favorites. I love reading him. Would have loved to see him preach. But I would have not put him any higher than myself or any of you, frankly. Or any of the apostles. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Seek and to save. That was his mission. To seek and to save that which was lost. Keep that in mind. Here's the excerpt. You can sit back for a moment. I'm going to read from Charles Spurgeon. This is a, a little further down in that sermon that I gave you a piece of on Sunday. He's talking about, he says, what is meant by saving sinners if that was the Lord's intention, his whole purpose for humiliating himself and becoming a man? What is meant by saving sinners? Quote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you want a picture to show you what is meant by being saved, let me give it to you. There is a poor wretch who has lived many a year in the grossest sin. So inured to sin he has become that the Ethiopian might sooner change his skin than he could learn to do well. Drunkenness, vice, and folly have cast their iron net about him. He has become loathsome and is unable to escape from his loathsomeness. Do you see him? He is tottering onward to his ruin. From childhood to youth, from youth to manhood, he has sinned right along. And now he is going toward his last days. The pit of hell is flaring across his path, flinging its frightful rays immediately before his face. Yet he sees it not. He still goes on in his wickedness, despising God and hating his own salvation. Leave him there. A few years have passed. Now hear another story. Do you see that spirit yonder? Foremost among the ranks, most sweetly singing the praises of God. Do you mark it robed in white, an emblem of its purity? Do you see it as it casts its crown before the feet of Jesus and acknowledges him the Lord of all? Hark! Do you hear it as it sings the sweetest song that ever charmed paradise itself? Listen to it. Its song is this. I, the chief of sinners, am, but Jesus died for me. Quote, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1, 5-6. Who is that whose song thus emulates the seraph's strains? It is the same person who a little while ago was so fright frightfully depraved, the self-same man. But he has been washed, 
He has been sanctified. He has been justified. If you ask me then, what is meant by salvation? I tell you that it reaches all the way from that poor, desperately fallen piece of humanity to that high-soaring spirit up yonder praising God. That is what it means to be saved, to have our old thoughts made into new ones, to have our old habits broken off and new habits given, to have our old sins pardoned and righteousness imputed, to have peace in the conscience, peace to man and peace with God, to have the spotless robe of imputed righteousness cast about our loins, and to have ourselves healed and cleansed. To be saved is to be rescued from the gulf of perdition, raised to the throne of heaven, delivered from the wrath to come and the thunders of an angry God, liberated from the curse of sin, and made to feel and taste the love, the approval and applause of Jehovah, our Father and our friend. All of this Christ gives to sinners. This simple gospel has nothing to do with those who will not confess themselves to be sinners. If you must be canonized, if you claim a saintly perfection of your own, the good news has nothing to do with you. Paul's gospel is a message for sinners and sinners alone. The whole of this salvation, so broad, so brilliant, so unspeakably precious, and so everlastingly secure, is addressed this day to the outcast, to the off-scouring. And then I'm fast-forwarding to the end of his sermon. It is not your house that is in danger. It is not your body only. It is your soul that is at stake. Quote, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Mark 8:36. Are you wise? This is more worthy than your wisdom. Are you rich? This is worthier than all your wealth. Are you famous? This is worthier than all your honor. Are you princely? This is worthier than your ancestry or your goodly heritage. The gospel is the worthiest thing under heaven because it will last when all other things fade away. It will stand by you when you have to stand alone. In the hour of death it will plead for you when you have to answer the summons of justice at God's bar. And it shall be your eternal consolation through never-ending ages. It is worthy of all acceptance. The Lord bless you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Again, that's from Charles Spurgeon. Wonderfully stated excerpt from a sermon on the idea of what it means to be a sinner that's saved. What does it mean that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save? Well, you have to understand what it means to be saved and what you're being saved from. And if you're not saved just yet, you have to understand one thing, that you're a sinner. 
and that you're depraved and you cannot save yourself. And that you're at, God, at odds with the holy God of the universe. Is it fair to say that both Paul and Spurgeon lived lives of gratitude? So what's the message for all of us years later? Learn to live a life of gratitude. Learn, oh, come on, people. Look around. Leo literally looked around. That was figurative. But it's good. It's good. You know, it's all good. He was just following my lead. He's like, he's looking around. I'm always not looking around. I mean, seriously, this place is a blessing. You're all a blessing. Are you not encouraged by seeing each other's faces? I am. Amen is right. How about that we have a building to worship in? How about that we have the gospel? How about that we're saved? How about that we've been given eternal life? How about that? I don't know about you, but that charges me up every single morning. And when I'm having a bad day, you know what I forgot? The gospel. I, put, I forgot to enduo, put on Christ. That's what I forgot. And by about halfway through the day, I'm like, man, I smell. And I'm wretched and I feel terrible. What the heck's going on? Oh, forgot to put on Christ. Forget to say a little prayer of gratitude to start my day. Forgot to open up my Bible and, and read it in my recliner. Oh, but God took away my coffee. That's a true story. I can't drink coffee anymore. I love coffee. can't drink anymore because of my esophagus. What am I going to do? Well, you took away my coffee, so therefore I'm not going to sit in my recliner and read in the morning. Uh. I would be mighty ungrateful, don't you think, to the one who saved me? Learn to live a life of gratitude. As this goes, so goes your sanctification. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Learn to live a life of gratitude. There isn't a person here Right now, listening to my voice that doesn't have a bazillion things to be grateful for. Are you breathing? Did you eat? Are you sucking on a straw with, I don't know, soda, soda, what do you got, Andrea? Coffee? Vodka? <laughs> Let's go back to the verse, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, do not be dissipated, <laughs> do not get drunk with wine. Seriously, thought you said vodka. Hey, whatever, teach their own. Sip it slow. First Thessalonians 5.16. What does it say? And this is one sentence. I've taught you this many times. This is one sentence. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's one sentence. It's one complete thought. Do you see it? If you're going to rejoice always, part of that is praying without ceasing. That actually lends itself to your ability to rejoice because when you fellowship with uh, your Father, you realize all the things you have to be grateful for. 
because he's got your attention. And God the Holy Spirit's, you know, knocking on your door while you're praying for something or giving thanks through prayer, you're increased. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing in everything, not some things, not kind of some things. That even means you're suffering because you know that if you're in his plan, even the suffering is for your own good. Anyone ever been to a gym here? Just take a Twinkie and curl that thing, man. I mean, while you're, you know, while you're curling and grunting and groaning and screaming, it's painful. Your, your muscles burn. You don't want to do this thing, the last squat, whatever it is you're doing. We call that strength training. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. There's resistance training. Even suffering is good. Do we forget these things? What about what Job said to his own wife? You sound like a silly woman. She said, curse God and die. You sound like a silly woman. Are we going to take the good things but not the bad from the Lord? Are we going to suppose we know better than him on how to raise up his own kids? So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. The original language there implies a putting out of a fire, even. Do not quench his fire in you. He's trying to prod you on, you understand? The Holy Spirit's there encouraging you, increasing with you in terms of your own faith, your own sanctification. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We've had a big dose of that recently. Examine everything in your life. Don't walk away from the last month's lessons and go, oh, obviously do the scarecrow. Oh, that he's dead. the Spirit's definitely talking to you on my, on my left and you on my right, but not me. No. Examine everything in your own life carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and, frankly, throw out what's no good. Abstain from every form of evil. If that means separating from certain people in your life, then do it. Then do it. And you don't have to separate physically from some, some people like, but I'm cube mates at work. Don't pick up your stuff and move. They might be offended. You might have a problem at work. Separate, you know what I mean? Here, separate. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete or mature without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. We get to lend a, or we get to lean on that. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. We were given the following principle on Sunday regarding our sanctification. The remedy to your problem is simple. It's the word. Whatever your problem is, learn to live a life of gratitude, knowing that God has the power to transform you. Whatever it is that's haunting you, whatever it is that you've been murmuring about or grumbling about or complaining about, whatever that thing is, turn to the Word and be grateful for what you do have. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's amazing. It's amazing what a little perspective will do 
for your attitude when you're wallowing in self-pity because, oh, the world just is so bad and my life is just so bad. Then you remember a few things to be grateful for and all of a sudden your perspective's changed and therefore your attitude's changed. And it takes literally a fraction of a second. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that's what it means to be delivered in time. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Up here on the board. So the word of God is powerful. Read Hebrews 4.12. It's all powerful. And it performs its work in you. The word of God is meant to sanctify you, set you apart, make you holy, separated for God's good purposes in time. We call that experiential or progressive sanctification. It doesn't matter if you call it those things. Just understand the concept. If it's not working in you or your life, then you lack faith in it. Your faith's object must be the word. In other words, don't come to church one time. Or don't open up your Bible one time and go, didn't work. It just didn't work. I looked at my Bible. I gave it a college try. Didn't work. I read like a whole chapter. A whole chapter. That's more than I read for my English assignments at school. Because I always get the cliff notes. There's no cliff notes. Sorry, guys. You've got to have the Word. You've got to give the Spirit some building materials to work with. It's trying to build you up, trying to set you apart. What kind of building are you going to be if you have no lumber, no nails? Your faith must have an object, and it's the Word of God. We ended on Sunday with practical considerations up here on the board. You might ask yourself, well, how do I know for sure if I have faith in the Word? I mean, I've seen it, I've read it. I've been studying it for a while, but I'm just not sure. How do I know? Easy. You are obedient to it. And it's not because it's a slave master. It's because you want to obey. You've been sanctified to such a degree by grace through, or by uh, faith through grace, or you know what I mean. By grace through faith. Thank you. You've been sanctified to such a degree that all of a sudden you want to open up your Bible. You don't care if you have coffee in front of you or not. You consider it a privilege to be breathing fresh air maybe or to even wake up in the morning and, and, and not need a new prescription so you can actually read. How about being grateful for those things, the fact that you can still read? How do you know for sure if you have faith in the Word? Easy. You're obedient to it. What does the Word tell us? If you want wisdom, the first part of wisdom is acquire wisdom. If you want to be sanctified, you have to have the Word. If you want wisdom from the Word, the first thing you want then is the wisdom itself. That's the start of wisdom, is acquire wisdom. And what does wisdom say? Open up your Bibles as often as you can. Pray. 
Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Be thankful for everything because that's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Did we not just read that? That's not a... You shouldn't take that as a command. You should want to do those things, and you will when you're sanctified. So you ask, how do I know for sure if I have faith in the Word? You're obedient to it. And you don't look at it like an adolescent would look at a command or rules of the house. Ah, it's so oppressive. No, you look at it maturely. You say, God knows best. If this is what He wants my life to be like, if these are the things, the commands that I'm supposed to obey, then I want to obey Him. And you probably, if you're like me, you have a 101 failures behind you that prove that trying it the other way doesn't work. The Spirit gave us an extra point to chew on regarding said obedience. Let's examine our key verse again to find what the Spirit's getting at. Go to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. One of the litmus tests, one of the ways that you know that you truly have faith is if you have integrity. Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is Paul getting at there? It's something we can certainly learn from up here on the board, much more in my absence. Integrity functions the exact same way whether the authority is present or not. It doesn't matter if you're in church or if you're in front of your parent or a teacher or your boss at work, whatever the authority is. Remember, the Bible says all authority is ordained by God. Integrity functions the exact same way whether or not the authority is present. It shouldn't matter whether you're in church or your Bible is open before you. Your actions ought to be the same. The principle is this. Up here in the board, an obedient person has integrity. A good soldier for Christ carries out his or her orders whether or not they are in the presence of their CO. And that's an army term for commanding officer. The question is then, what kind of soldier disobeys? I mean, if we're called soldiers for Christ, which we are, what kind of soldier then disobeys? Would that not be an indicator of your own faith? In other words, as soon as you're away from the authorities in your life and you veer off, you yes them to death, you lip service them to death, and then as soon as they're out of view, you... Run off and do your own thing. That's called being disobedient. Well, what kind of soldier disobeys the Lord? Again, the instigating question up here on the board, if you want to be convicted about this, you might ask yourself, well, how do I know for sure if I have faith in the Word? Easy, you have obedience to it. You are obedient to it. Look at Philippians 2.12 again. You're still there, right? Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. Now we'll get to that if we got time this evening, but obviously it's the Lord that's bringing glory to himself. It's for his good pleasure. This echoes of the point on the board from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe up here on the board again. The word of God is meant to sanctify you, make you holy, separated for God's good purposes in time. If it's not working in you or your life, then you lack faith in it. You can have all the word, all, you could have this entire thing memorized, but you don't have to necessarily have faith in it. I mean, you could go to church every day of your life, but who cares? We know there are unbelievers in every church, probably. I'm hoping not in here, but who knows? Only God knows. Your faith's object must be the word as well. Again, look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's not because God doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> you know, God's not up there going, oh, well, you guys shut up. I'm trying to watch TiVo. <laughs> right? He's not going to do that. Why does he want you grumbling or disputing? Because he doesn't want you to live in a miserable life. He knows it's unfruitful to be at each other. What is he saying? Paul wrote in Galatians, be careful you don't devour one another, even. If you're constantly at each other's throats, you're not thinking about Jesus Christ. What did we just read? Jesus Christ himself said, love your enemies. If you look at somebody as your enemy, love them. That doesn't mean grumble and dispute and drop the hockey gloves. It doesn't. Jesus Christ said, if your enemy hits you, turn your cheek. Let him hit you the other way. If he takes your shirt, give him your coat. Why? How did I start class? The only thing that matters is the gospel. Seriously, you're going to go fisticuffs with somebody, with some idiot who's raging in their flesh? You're going to go fisticuffs and ruin every future chance whatsoever to give them the gospel? This is what we've resorted to as so-called soldiers for Christ? This is what we're going to do? This is the battle we're going to fight? No. He said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're trying to get this precious gospel out to a world that's so stupid and fleeting that they don't even understand it. The last thing we want to do is go drop the hockey gloves and stop fighting with them. That's the very last thing we want to do. God knows this. It's not because we're being noisy down here and we're bothering him. It's for us. He's saying it's much more fruitful. Remember, I created you. It's much more fruitful for you guys not to do those things and focus on the Great Commission. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Now we're going to add a little bit. I'm going to slow down just a little bit, because that pretty much finishes up our review. The Old Testament often referred to the word as the law of the Lord. I want to read a passage that speaks about the power of the word. Because that's what we're talking about. That's what we've been talking about. What is able to sanctify you? 
the Word of God. What has power? The Word of God. The Old Testament spoke of it as the law of the Lord, etc., a couple of other different ways. More specifically, let us think about the language that Paul used, again, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the Word of God, he wrote, which also performs its work in you who believe. So we know that it's the Word of God that has power. In other words, what about the so-called works of the Word? What about the fruit of the Word? Does the Bible speak of all this? Instead of it just saying the Word is powerful, well, what about? What can we look for? If we're still asking that question, that sort of recurring question, well, then how do I know if I have faith? How do I know I'm being sanctified? Well, what does the Word do in our lives? Well, there's scripture for that. We're going to go to the Old Testament. Go to Psalm 19.7. At the end of the day, the question we want answered at this junction in our study is, what does the Bible say about its own works? I mean, are there, actual, are there actually passages? Sure there are. Are there passages of Scripture that literally say this is what the Word does? Yeah. So if you're interested, this is the power of the Word. We're going to read an Old, Te Old Testament passage, Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's an individual who understands the power of the word to sanctify. Let me meditate on that. Instead of meditating on Seinfeld reruns or where you're going to get your coffee after church, or how quickly you can get home so you can crack open that Bud Light, or whatever it is you've got your mind set on. Instead of meditating on those things, why not meditate on the one thing that can deliver you? The Word of God. That's all the Spirit's been saying. Get your priorities straight. And when your priorities straight, and when you have faith in such workings of the Lord then that's what you aim to do each and every day in increasing doses. The more you mature in the Word, the more you realize that this is where it's at. This is where it's at. It doesn't say quit on everything. It doesn't say go live in a cave, go give up you know, all your friendships all at once, and you, you, know, you turn your back on your family and quit your job and move to Alaska and become a fisherman by yourself with a little hole. I'm trying to picture it. 
Anybody with me? It doesn't say that. He said, go ahead and continue in the condition in which I put you. You know that's in Scripture. Remain in the condition in which you were called. I called you. I saved you where you're at. In Dighton or Rehoboth, wherever you're from. I saved you right where you're at. I don't want you to run away with your tail between your legs now. That's not what a good soldier does. A good soldier dons the uniform and stands up straight and says, what are my marching orders? Right? That's what a good soldier does. Let me meditate on these things. How, much, how, effective, do you think a good, how effective do you think a sniper is going to be in the army if he's daydreaming about his hot girlfriend while he's supposed to be shooting someone from 6,000 yards? I don't know what the distance is. What are you, oh, baby, I can't wait. Another one's gone by friendly fire. How effective is that soldier going to be if he's meditating on the wrong things? How effective is that person going to be? That's the point that the Spirit's saying. Clear the way. Keep the good, get rid of the bad. Does that happen all at once? No, because we're stupid sheep. And half the time we're grazing on bad grass, we don't even know it. What? Like good stuff, right? And then, like a year later, like this is terrible. I was on. I was like chewing the bad stuff. So you have to show yourself some grace along the way, but that doesn't change the truth, does it? It doesn't change how or why or even when the Lord's going to sanctify you. The idea is to get the wisdom to know the differences between these things. Satan's going to lie to you the whole way. The kingdom of darkness is going to lie to you the whole way and say, you're not called. You're a nobody. You'll never make it. You're not good enough to be loved. You're not good enough to be saved. You're not going to do this. And they're going to lie to you the whole way and challenge the very power of the word of God and God the Holy Spirit in your life. And sometimes he wins for a time. So Psalm 19, it's a good, wonderful list of good works Allah, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that we can depend on the word doing in our lives. That's the point. The word is not inactive. Read Hebrews 4.12 when you get home. It's active. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what the word of God says. It moves in our lives. It motivates. It sets free. It sanctifies. It does all these unbelievable things, these magnificent things. And sadly, a lot of people never get to rejoice in it. So we get to depend on the word doing these things in our lives. And as we've been noting, works can only be done by power. Isn't that the very basis? If you look up the word, the, the definition for work, it, means, it would be implied that some power source is behind it. That's how you do work. And the most basic analogy in physics, work, I believe, is a joule, I think. I forget what it is. But it's some measurement. In electricity, it's a watt. It doesn't matter. Something's being pushed from here to here. And we measure it. Well, there's not. it just doesn't happen by itself. There's not just some phantom power. There's a real power that moves things. Well, getting a sheep like you from point A to point B requires power. Because you die where you're at. Because you're that dumb. Me too. We're that stupid. We need to be sanctified. We need to be moved along. 
We need to keep on grazing. We have to be encouraged to keep on grazing on the Word of God. So as we've been noting, works can only be done via power. Works require some form of movement, which always implies power, whether it's movement of thought or action. Something is always motivating and empowering us to do the will of God. Anytime there's this kind of, quote, movement in our lives, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. Isn't there an activity to be set apart for God's purposes? Isn't, excuse me, isn't that an activity? Yeah. Isn't there an implied movement? You bet. You were here yesterday, you're here today. You had this measure of faith yesterday, you have more today. Where do you think you got it? Did you think you manufactured it out of the ether? No. No. God's power did that in your life. And for that alone, you should be grateful. And I was thinking about this. Maybe this is where I'll end. I hate to end so, I don't know, poetically. I don't usually do this, but as I was, you know, typing my message up this morning, and uh, even after, uh, uh, before class, I was thinking about sanctification, right? And the power that God moves us, and God is on the move. Anybody know the song? God is on the move. Don't ask me to sing it. But I'm going to read the lyrics to this song by Seventh Time Down called God is on the Move. Let me just hear me out. Anytime a heart turns from darkness to light, Anytime temptation comes and someone stands to fight, anytime someone lives to serve and not be served, I know, I know, I know, I know, God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. God is on the move in many mighty ways. God is on the move, on the move. Hallelujah. God is on the move, on the move today. Anytime in weakness someone falls upon their knees, or dares to speak the truth that sets men free. Anytime the choice is made to stand upon the word, I know, I know, I know, I know, the chorus. I see your generation standing on the truth in each and every day, saying God is on the move. Anytime the gospel stirs a searching soul and someone says, quote, send me, here I go. I know, I know, I know, I know. And there's the chorus. I see your generation standing on the truth in each and every day saying God is on the move. That's the way it is. God is on the move, my friends. That's how sanctification works. He's not impotent. He doesn't fail. If you have his faith, guess what? It's going to work. You know why? Because the Word of God is omnipotent. It's all-powerful. It cannot fail. To say the Word can fail is to say the God of the universe is a failure. Because the Scripture itself tells us that He is the Word. That Jesus Christ, God, is the Word. So to imply that the Word might fail in your life is to imply that God is a failure. Are you going to say that? I'm not about to say that. God is on the move. Amen? Let me just read you this and then I'll close. 
up here on the board. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives, under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. Again, anytime there's godly movement in our lives, it could be this much. Maybe your attitude has changed this very evening about the Word of God itself. Maybe you've had a change of heart about Jesus Christ. Maybe you're the one who's lost or put down his hand. You've lost your first love, and he's hearkening you back. I don't know. There are people in here right now that have intimated to me that they've been at odds. They've been angry with God. And they go weeks or a month even like this. Money, right? We're not talking. We're not on talking terms right now. Oh, sure, I'll go to church and I'll read my... But we're not really on talking terms right now. Maybe that's gone. Maybe you see the ridiculousness, the futility of your folly. Maybe that's what... Maybe I don't know, but that's sanctification. Do you get it? Every little bit is closer to the end game. Every little bit has delivered you from what you weren't yesterday. That's the beauty of living an individual life. That's why we're never to look to our left and our right and say, I'll never be as mature as that person. You never do that thing because you either come out arrogant because you think you're better or you come out worse because you think you're inferior. Never compare yourselves. Some of us are at plateaus. Some of us are like this. Some of us are like, you know. We're all going through this thing, right? And he's sanctifying us. And that, to me, that alone is enough to be very grateful for. Not only did he save me, seriously, a wretch like me, a ridiculous idiot like me, come on, you can, I got some more for you, mister. Not only did he save me, but he didn't leave me alone after. He said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, I'm going to one-up this whole thing. I'm going to sanctify you in time. Somehow, some way, you're going to bring glory. You're going to glorify God in time. You. Because I'm going to sanctify you. And it may take a while. So just be patient. Show yourself some grace. Grace, Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to study your word together as family this evening, to break bread, the very bread of life, together. Thank you for giving us a meal to chew on and take with us over the weekend so that you might, in your own special way, in each of our lives as individuals, sanctify us that much more. We are so very grateful for these things, Father. Thank you for your patience, your mercy, and your love. We ask your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.